The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. BHP uh, announces a record half-year dividend payout as results hit a seven-year high on the back of surging iron ore prices. Crew climbs as the mercury falls a deep freeze in the U.S., shuts wells and refineries in Texas and leaves millions without power. Michelin sales skidding, but the French tyre manufacturer benefiting from falling material prices and hikes its dividend. We're going to speak exclusively to the Michelin CFO, Yves Chapeau, at 8.45 CET. The WHO grants an emergency use listing for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, paving the way for a more widespread rollout in low- and middle-income countries. As the Dutch finance minister tells CNBC that life in Europe could start to get back to normal very soon. I'm optimistic about you know the phase uh, just before summer. Uh, I think then with a um, with a far increased level of vaccination, uh, you know, with uh, summer entering the continent. Good morning. We start the show with one of the red-hot areas of the markets, uh, commodities. And BHP, the world's largest miner, has reported numbers today. Shares in the Australian miner, listed miner, closed higher today as they declared a record $5.1 billion dividend payout. BHP posted its best first-half profit in seven years, boosted by a strong Chinese demand for iron ore. We're looking forward to the listing later on when the stock opens up for trade on the UK stock market. Already it's been travelling around some of the higher ranges. Let's get out to Will Kalouris for more from Sydney. Will, this uh, mining company went into the crisis very differently from how it went in the, the previous one. Balance sheet was very slim and sold off any assets that were underperforming. Then we quickly saw the rebound on the back all of the stimulus money as uh, Chinese uh, factories started to reopen. How positive has that been for BHP's numbers today as they've reported? It's been absolutely incredibly positive for their numbers because you just got to look at it from the context of their return on capital employed. That came in at 24%. It's about a 5% jump from what they did see last time at 19.1%. And that's all been driven by this price realisation that they've managed to see over the since the, the start of the pandemic, but perhaps maybe six months ago when we really started to see the iron ore price run higher on the back of this increased Chinese demand as all this infrastructure spending did come online. Of course, all of the attention today was indeed on the dividend because they basically broke ranks with what they had been doing previously. The past couple of years, they've been basically paying out dividends on around about a 70% payout ratio when it does come to their earnings. This time around, they've actually paid out 85% of their earnings. And if you look at that number, that 5.1 billion US dollars in dividends that were paid out, that $1.01 US cents a share, that actually comprises the entirety of their free cash flow outside of their other net cash flow of around about 9 billion. So 5.2 in free cash flow, 5.1 getting paid out to investors. And even if you look perhaps at some of the other underlying metrics when it does come to BHP, like you mentioned, Karen, that balance sheet 
has considerably improved as well. We saw net debt coming off by 7% from last year. So that's now below that target range of between 12 and 17 billion US dollars, 11.8 billion. Yes, they might have missed when it came to the underlying profit, but it was only by around about 4% on consensus estimates. The dividend, like I said, was the star. But even if you look at, for example, their attributable net profit, so that came in at around about 3.8 billion US dollars and it was off 20%. But Again, it's because of the improvements that they have done to their balance sheet and really setting themselves up for the future because they took a $2.2 billion write down on a number of energy coal assets that they're looking to offload. They took a bit of a tax loss of around about a little bit over 1 billion US dollars and they also took write downs on Serion over there in Colombia of around about 400 million US dollars. So if you think of it from the context that They've basically set up their balance sheet for success. We're coming into perhaps what is a commodity super cycle with iron ore sticky at 166, copper, everyone's suggesting that it's going to absolutely surge. 25% of their earnings, Karen, BHP could be set to continue on these strong results. It'd just be a matter of how much they pay out in dividends. All right, well, I'm going to pick up there as well. So that's the first commodity super cycle of the day. I wonder how many more of them we're going to hear the rest of the day. We're going to have a little tally. Thanks, Will. Really good to hear your view as well on that. Well, talking of commodity super cycles, have a look at uh, where oil is currently trading, WTI and Brent. Uh, and, I, and I say that in very guarded fashion because all of a sudden um, we're hearing it a lot. We're hearing from the likes of JP. We're hearing from the likes of Goldman Sachs who are talking about a northerly direction potentially uh, in the likes of Brent crude and WTI as well, which, uh, as we said yesterday, in fact, they're very similar levels to where we were trading yesterday. They came off their highs from yesterday, so we're actually spot on, I'd imagine, where we were this time on the show yesterday. But uh, one of the reasons uh, for the uptick in WTI, and hence uh, Brent as well, is that Texas is witnessing a rare cold snap triggering a surge in power demand, which has resulted in rolling blackouts. Now, according to a power outage tracker, around 4 million Texans were left without electricity at one point. The freezing weather also affected northern Mexico, where around 4 million people went without power. So let's just get straight into this conversation as well. Karen's, uh, of course, joining us in this conversation. I'm hearing a lot about the fact that we could be on the back of getting to a super cycle. The fact is that there's going to be less supply coming from the IOCs now as they have the transition to newer energies uh, and that actually demand is going to pick up as we pick up pull out of, of COVID-19 as well. So the combination of these factors could create the situation where we have a super cycle. My problem with this is there is an awful lot of oil around there, regardless of what the IOCs do. We know that shale has become profitable in many cases, just below $40 a barrel. It's not the old shale that was 50 bucks. So at 60 plus, of course, they can turn on the taps quite aggressively. My other issue is that actually the real pendulum swing out there is, of course, OPEC, OPEC plus with Russia as well. Now, these parties have taken a vast amount of oil off the table, and now the spare capacity is potentially around about 8 million barrels a day, one of the biggest spare capacity levels I've ever seen as well. So you have caveats on that. Now, we also uh, rallied on concerns, I'm told, by the scribes about Middle East tensions. Well, if those Middle East tensions were to lessen somewhat and Iran were to put its oil back on the table, there's a lot more potential product going there. So, Yes, I get the fact that people are talking about coming out of COVID. I get the fact that there's less supply from the IOCs now. But who's buying that IOC uh, production capacity? Well, surely it's either the NOCs or indeed it's Asian companies as well who actually have maybe a slightly different attitude to ESG in terms of ownership of uh, hydrocarbon assets. I think it's a very delicate balance, Karen and Jeff. I haven't said who will follow. Karen, why don't you come in? (laughs) 
I think what you've had here, a very positive run for the commodity for oil. And you saw hedge funds uh, just over a week ago also turn bullish on the trade. So you're getting money moving off the sidelines. And this story overnight has presented three different reasons why oil should trade even higher from here. And the story around Texas, you've got 31 refineries, the most of any state that have been impacted by this deep freeze. So that's clearly a short-term hit as you've had this elevated price throw in a little bit of geopolitics, which we've not had. And the other story around AstraZeneca's vaccine being approved by WHO, that gives, gives you another leg higher on the, the vaccine the demand story coming back if economies can reopen. So three positive stories, and that's going to squeeze the price a little bit higher. But I think, Steve, what you're pointing out here is that this is a very different story to what we've seen in other areas where there have been shortages, where there's been a drawdown or a sudden spike in demand. And, you know, chip shortages being one of them. You can't just switch on factories and quickly bring back more production of chips if there's more demand. Same story, too, as we talk about steel and iron ore. You can't simply just get more out of the ground or turn on steel facilities. So it's quite different when you talk about oil and how quickly you can bring some of this back to market versus some of these other areas that have run much higher because of the shortage story. Um, let me just delve into the history books for a moment here and, and see if I can figure out what I think is going on. So normally when you think about the market uh, for a commodity like oil, you've got the supply story and you've got the demand story. And the demand story has been very consistent over recent years. Um, and it's the supply side that's controlled the price, I think. And we've had this opacity around OPEC decision making. And then we had OPEC and OPEC plus, And then we had some consistency around decision making. And then we got a, a, a path for oil that seemed to a certain extent to be predictable on the supply side. What you need for a true commodity super cycle is for the demand side to change, in my opinion. And so if you look back over the historic super cycles for commodities, the last big one we had was the growth of China. So that's effectively what, uh, 1990 through to 2013 or thereabout. And we had that major top in oil in 2011, where we went over $100 a barrel. You go back before that, the previous super cycle was probably the Second World War, and before that, the Industrial Revolution. So for a genuine super cycle to take place here, we need evidence that there is a kick up in demand. Now, are we seeing that evidence at the moment? What we've had is um, demand suppressed but not killed off. We believe that there is a huge reflation economic growth story coming later on this year as populations go back to uh, life as it existed before the pandemic. But will it actually be delivered? Are we seeing at the moment a response primarily to the financialization of the commodity markets as a result of all this extra stimulus? Or is this really reflective of a, a proper end user pickup in demand? And I don't think we have the answer to that yet. We can only find that out once we get into the end of this year and into 2022. For my money at the moment, this looks like lots of money sloshing around the world looking for an asset that has yet to be inflated to new all-time highs. And we've had equity because that's the most liquid asset. We've had bonds because that's a pretty liquid asset. And now we're finding this money going into the commodities on, market. One very quick comment as well. Very often an oil price spike, if we're looking at the history books, um, sets the precedent mm. for an economic decline aggressively. Yeah. So if they 
pushed this one too far. And I've many years, I mean, many OPEC sec gens over the years, the likes of Khalil, uh, El Badri, Barkindo, etc. But they, they always say, oh, we want a fair price for the consumers and the producers. And they don't, what they mean is the highest price they can sell without squeezing the economy too much. Well, that's what they really mean, of course. Uh, and I guess that, that, so if they push it too far, and this causes an economic downturn in countries that are the X factor in terms of the, the, the ones who are going to use the extra or the Indias of this mm. world, the mm. Chinas of this world. Mm. Th- then we've got a, an economic problem, another economic problem, which we just don't need at the moment. Am I hearing bell-bottom trousers? No, you're hearing, Rod telling, us rollers. To, you're hearing Rod telling us to move on. I think you're talking <laughs> about the 70s, <laughs> where the 70s. we get a spike in the, uh, the oil price and ultimately we end up with a stagflationary uh, economic outcome. Anyhow, we better move on. Rod, thank you for the cue. Rod's the director, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, President Biden will visit the state of Wisconsin today as he looks to garner public backing for his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. In his first trip outside Washington since entering the White House, Biden is set to argue increased fiscal aid will help boost the recovery. Republicans have criticized the size of Biden's plan, while Democrats have said they are willing to pass the legislation unilaterally. So we had a debate with our excellent production team led by Anna this morning about whether we should have the markets in the headline. And we, yeah, we're going to stick it in at some stage, I think. Because look, look at these markets. US indices are, as you say, catching up because they had President's Day yesterday. And we had an extraordinary rally. I mean, absolutely extraordinary rally on many products yesterday, as we've just talked about on, with commodities, but also on the indices as well. Uh, and Jeff, off camera, we, in fact, we have as many conversations about the market off camera as on camera. We are such dullards. But the one we were talking about was, was the FTSE as well, which we'll come to. And they had a huge rally at the same time. The pound was rallying. I'll show you the pound in a few moments' time. At the same time as this. Look at that. That's 123.16. Now, we were a little bit higher, um, the 10-year, to 124.50. But interesting to see that the 10-year yield is picking up a little bit. Now, okay, it's still very benign now. But when we start getting up to 1.5%, what does that mean uh, for asset allocation? What does it start to mean for the dollar? What does it start to mean uh, for the cost of financing as well? It's just something to keep aware of. Still relatively benign, but come up quite aggressively from our lows of last year as well. Now, the dollar crosses, and I'll just make that London point that I was saying. Look, Big spat going on with the Europeans at the moment about various things and paperwork at the border and concerns about vaccine rollouts and real concerns about Northern Ireland, which is a, a clear and present problem. But look at this. At the same time that the FTSE rallied 2.5% yesterday, 139.31. So continuing its stately progress towards 140 and possibly beyond. The euro dollar, 121.35. Dollar yen, 105.49 as well. So let's uh, just keep that in your mind. It's interesting to see some of these currencies moving and the yields moving quite aggressively. But in the meantime, Karen, we have our corporate mantra to look at as well. Yep. Coming up on the show, we're going to be speaking to the co-CEOs of DSM. As the Dutch specialty chemicals business reports its fourth quarter numbers, that's coming up uh, on CNBC. It's a first on Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. We've had numbers just crossing from DSM a short time ago out on the wiser. Let's just delve into what we've got uh, for your EBITDA from continuing operations at 1.37 billion versus uh, 1.46 billion uh, a year ago. The company also saying expects to deliver an adjusted EBITDA increase in nutrition at the upper end of its midterm strategic ambition of high single digit growth. So uh, the company just giving us a slight adjustment on that. Nutrition saw an overly uh, overall positive sales impact from COVID-19, mainly due to a very strong demand in demand in human nutrition. And uh, also global uncertainty remains. And looking ahead, they have a strong, I have a positive outlook for DSM in 2021. Let's get into the details around this because clearly two parts to the business, nutrition being one of them, but the other materials, and that saw a negative impact of around 10% on volumes in one year. Joining us now is Dimitri DeVries and Geraldine Matchett, the co-CEOs of DSM. Let's get into the outlook and what you're seeing the numbers now. Geraldine, I just want to get a sense of how that final quarter played out because I know you had these dual impacts. There was a, a decent result for the nutrition side, but yet materials couldn't get out of this pandemic uh, headwind that we saw impact many industries. Did you see any difference in that final three months of the year? Good morning. Thank you for having us. Um, yes, indeed, there is two parts to DSM. About 80% of DSM is nutrition and health. And um, the other 20% is our materials business. And you very correctly point out that we actually had a very strong finish to the year. Now, if we look at our nutrition business, we had a 9% increase in organic growth. Um, that led to 10% up in adjusted EBITDA. And that is even despite the foreign exchange headwinds with the weaker dollar uh, that we have been seeing. Now, what's also nice is that in the fourth quarter, we saw a strong recovery from our materials business, which was the first quarter in 2020. Q2, Q3 were, were much harder, but we saw volumes up 14% uh, linked to the automotive uh, sector, primarily, I have to say. And uh, um, in terms of, of the overall results, it's really nice to also see that our cash generation was up by 19% this year. Uh, so pretty solid financial results for what was a, a challenging year uh, for the world and uh, certainly an unprecedented one. Dimitri, let me cross over to you because we saw in the final three months that uh, the improvement that has just been fleshed out there from Geraldine. But how much visibility do you have now as you cast out your outlook for 2021 and provide just a little bit more detail around the nutrition numbers that you're expecting? Yeah, thank you for that question indeed. I think we need to, to dive one segment deeper. We have animal nutrition, we have human nutrition, and obviously we have our materials businesses. And, and they basically have three different streams to it. So let me start with human nutrition and health. Um, what we always say is that health and nutrition go hand in hand. And we've seen during the whole COVID-19 pandemic that it really was the case. And there's a lot of scientific evidence that nutrition helps your immune system. And I hope that you also took your dietary supplements this morning because there's lots of scientific evidence that it helps your boosting your immunity system. And that helped the growth of human nutrition and health. 
Then on the animal nutrition and health space, um, where we supply um, animal nutrition and premixes and feed to all different species. We've seen that throughout the year, it was a bit of a roller coaster. We had an extreme good quarter one with insecurity around COVID. And we saw some destocking in quarter two and quarter three. And very happy to see that quarter four was normalizing. And we've seen decent growth in the animal nutrition and health space. And on materials, I think um, Geraldine already alluded to it. So let me let me stop there. Let me, let me jump in here. Let me jump in here, um, both of you. Nice to see you both, by the way, as well. Look, we've just had a conversation about oil. We've just had a conversation about hydrocarbons. Now, we know that your company is fully invested in, uh, as your own website says, winds of change and, and solar operations as well and, uh, and the materials to drive these renewables as well. What do you make of, of prospects for increased hydrocarbon demand and people talking about a super cycle there? Do you think that people, when they say that, are just not being ambitious enough looking for alternatives? Or, and if there is a super cycle in hydrocarbons and specifically oil, how will that change the perspective for your business and the products you're selling as well? Why don't I start off with Geraldine? Well, thank you very much for pointing to this, because indeed we are a company that is not only innovation driven, but very much a, a recognized ESG stock. And you know that we have been very active in not only the net zero roadmap uh, for 2050, but very concrete steps when it comes to 2030. Now, a lot of our innovation is linked to improving the environmental footprint of our customers. And I have to say that we don't see a reversal of that trend, neither be it from our nutrition customers who are looking at the environmental impact of food production or our materials customers who are very much looking at substituting metals for plastics, looking at renewable, looking at recyclable. Circularity is where all of the innovation money is going right now. So from a trend point of view, it would be quite a surprise to see a reversal amongst others because consumers and customers are very keen on making sure that they consume um, products and services that are environmentally sustainable. Um, so that's the way I look at it. But um, Dimitri, is there something that you would um, add in terms of of the input costs, maybe? Yeah, I think any change around the world will help innovation. And I think what we have seen that you and mankind have surprises of many, many times. And this cycle, as you in, in, included, could spur that innovation. That's one. Secondly, everything which has to do with innovation and putting a price on waste would spur innovation. And that's where we as DSM stand for. I think that's a problem which we do see for the world, that there is no price on waste. And I think if we put on that, then I think the whole circular thinking will be accelerated. And that's something where we as DSM have a role to play. Dimitri, what does the fourth quarter tell us about the turnaround in materials sales uh, when we get to mid-year or uh, later in 2021 when we're ultimately going to see the lockdowns removed and uh, large swathes of populations in the Western world vaccinated? Can we imagine a scenario where actually sales into the autos business and uh, other key customers are back to pre-pandemic levels or have we had a structural shift in this industry? I think, I think there, there is a structural shift, um, but there's a structural shift in terms of what type of cars are built. And I think there the electrification of that car fleet will continue to happen and is accelerating. So that's one. Secondly, what our story tells us in quarter four is that it's a highly volatile still out there in the world. I mean, we had a plus 14% volume 
after being down in quarter two and quarter three. So this is, a, is an erratic pattern. Part of that is because there is indeed increased demand. There's a bit more confidence. Uh, by the way, car builds in Asia aren't being back for pre-COVID levels. That's not yet the case for Europe and the US. And part of that extra demand is just filling the pipeline because they've been so thin throughout the year that they're restocking a little bit. So that's also why we're a bit uh, cautious for 2021 to give a precise outlook. So therefore, we said our total outlook is into the double digit with nutrition really, really strong and materials recovering from a, from a COVID-like 2020 year. And can you... Um Give us a sense, uh, Geraldine, as we as we come to you on this. Obviously, we're we're looking to the animal nutrition market in particular. I think for uh, renewed strength, clearly there's been some resilience in that part of the business already. Can you just help us understand? Is there much more upside to go for when we come the other side of the pandemic? Given how largely, I would say, a lot of those sales are irrelevant to the lockdowns. Yeah, what we have seen during the pandemic is, of course, that food is a very resilient space. I mean, that is um, very much the case. Having said that, of course, the dynamics between preparing food at home and eating out has impacted some of the end um, sector. So think about salmon, for example. Um, we have certainly seen volumes go down. Uh, what we would expect is that as societies start opening up again, people go out, there will be an increased uh, consumption of salmon and there will also be the reopening, hopefully, of the fresh counters in the supermarkets. That would be typically a category that will go back up. Um, we also, if I broaden to the broader nutrition space, you will also see more consumption of out-of-home beverages. Uh, we know that brewing, for instance, was a bit down during the pandemic. That should step up. So what we are likely to see is that the categories that were resilient remain resilient. Dairy, baking, savory, um, poultry very much. And we will see a recovery of those that have been a bit more subdued during 2020. Geraldine, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Geraldine Maché, the co-CEO of DSM, alongside Dimitri DeFries, the co-CEO of DSM. Always a pleasure catching up with both of you. And I know you've got a busy day ahead, so we'll let you go at that. Go on. Geraldine's just got me thinking about the meal that I'm going to have when I finally get to go out. What are but you going to it's got have? fish. You got fish? I got fish today. Uh, I'm no, having fish. No, 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 no. I've got... <laughs> you know we don't eat that. Um, first meal in the pub or restaurant? Uh. Uh, oh, if I go to if one. If you're ever allowed to go out again. Right. Uh, and what would I have? Yeah. Um, You'll probably just go for roast beef. No, I don't know. <laughs> and a fine a, port. <laughs> I, I always have real problem choosing when I go. Yeah. There are always so many interesting things on there the are, menus, aren't there? there? Um, I have to say, though, aren't we all eating fish now? Now to help out the fishermen? Now that they can't sell their oh, what, stuff. Oh, the British in, fishermen uh, have been shut yeah, yeah. small ones. And been they're, shut they're out. renaming all the crabs and things to that? make them sound That's more amazing, attractive. Isn't it? So there's some strange names for a lot of the British fish, yeah. um, which have been unappetising. Spider crab. Spider crab. So they've yeah. now called uh, it Cornish crab. Cornish crab. Cornish. Delicious. <laughs> Spider crab. Yeah. It's Cornish crab. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> we could do this all day, can we? No, not really. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.